You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. If the regime then is in a form or scheme which organizes political society with respect to its offices, especially the sovereign, then we must talk about who deliberates and in light of what purpose. That's the big political question Aristotle saw. Who then should be an active citizen? And what purpose should they be pursuing? Purpose includes an idea of the good life, an ethics. What is flourishing? See, is it money-making, as the oligarchs say? Or is it just freedom to act at random, as they saw the Democrats say? Or is it the pursuit of gentlemanly virtue, which, by the way, Aristotle did not think was the last account of virtue as lived by the aristocrats? So the idea of a good life is important, and secondly, an idea of justice. Now Aristotle makes his famous division into political regimes that still comes down to us and forms our political language, although there will be one great exception which we'll have to talk about, that is the term democracy, but even that term, if one is aware of our own political tradition, I think we will see we are not in fundamental disagreement with Aristotle's basic analysis. Basically, Aristotle divides regimes into six different types. Now, I might add that as a good empiricist, as a good philosopher of nature who liked to collect specimens. It is said that Aristotle had hundreds of examples of written constitutions and descriptions of political organizations. So he did this not through an a priori idea or the following out from an easy speculation in his armchair but he was out and abroad looking at political societies and the way they were organized. And here's how he organized them. He first divided them into those which are good and those which are bad, based upon the principle of whether the political society works for a common good or whether it's dominated by a partial or private good. Again, there will be some gray area here, but Aristotle thought we could distinguish those regimes which honestly tried to act for the good of the city from those regimes where those who had a partial or private good, which they sought political power only for private benefit. Again, Leo Strauss has said, we know what we mean by the term virtue with respect to politics. It means those with a willingness to prefer common interests to their private interest and to the objects of their passions. And those who discern what is noble and right in a given situation and do it for that reason. 
but I'll focus from Strauss's quote on those who prefer the common interest to their private interest. Any political society knows the corruption of bribery or when private interest comes to dominate that the political society will be jeopardized. Aristotle then takes another principle of division, first based upon quantity, but as we'll see, it really is a qualitative distinction, and that is whether it is ruled by one, by few, or by many. And if you put those together, you see we get the six terms, which as I said, still are part of our political vocabulary. Rule by one for the common good is called monarchy. In Greek, its etymology is literally rule by one. Aristocracy means rule by the best. That would be rule by few who are ruling for a common good and not their private interest. Rule by the many, Aristotle actually calls polity, and it will be a mixed regime which we will have to say more about in our next lesson. On the bad side, Aristotle sees rule by one turning into tyranny or despotism. Despotism captures the idea of the rule of the master over the slave, as we saw previously in book one of the politics. If it's ruled by the few for their own interest, it's called oligarchy. And here's the controversial point. Democracy, Aristotle places in the list of bad regimes, but again, as properly understood, I think our own constitution squares well with the Aristotelian analysis. In his experience, democracy is the phenomenon of rule by the many or the people, the demos, to the point where they attack the interest of any other group or class. So that would be a democracy that's simply a faction which attacks and destroys property owners, attacks and destroys those who may have greater virtue or achievements. Obviously, American democracy is not what Aristotle means by democracy, although it's possible some of its tendencies would go in that direction. But our Constitution is more like an Aristotelian polity. See, the common good, as Maritain explains, is not a collection of individual goods and interests that have no bearing on the other. It is truly a common good. It's something we all benefit from. It's something we all participate in. On the other hand, Maritain says, the common good is not a whole in itself, separate from the individual. But the individual is part of the whole. Maritain says it's a good that is justly communed in by as many persons as possible. Or another phrase Maritain will use, the common good is the good of the whole which flows back to the persons. So that's the chief mark of political excellence is the achievement of the common good. The good that is not just an addition of individual interest wrapped together, but something that is communal, something that is shared in common, but by the same token does flow back upon the person. So let's get to the real political tension of Aristotle's politics. 
which is reproduced in Yves Simone's book, Philosophy of Democratic Society. I think Simone's book probably repeats in a modern way the Aristotelian sense of political tension and what I will call the incommensurability of the claims to rule than any other book that I've read by a contemporary political philosopher. Strauss may be another one who's able to achieve this. But here's the basic problem. Who should rule? Aristotle thinks there are various claims, claims that are part of the city. The basic claims are not one few and many, but a qualitative issue. The claims to rule are virtue, that is excellence. Remember, virtue means excellence, excellence of achievement. It doesn't just mean a narrow self-righteousness that virtue has often come to be understood as. But virtue means full excellence. Excellence is a claim to rule. Wealth is a claim to rule. Numbers, that is the majority, have a claim to rule. Aristotle thinks those when you analyze politics down to the elements, that is what is basically at work. Claims to excellence, claims about wealth and the production of wealth, claims about majority and superior numbers. So each claim gives rise to a different type of regime. Now Aristotle thinks that each claim is a limited claim. I think that's the genius of Aristotle. He's not just a pure partisan for virtue. He's not anti-democratic. But neither is he a partisan of democracy or just sheer numbers as a principle of rule. Nor is he a partisan for or against wealth. He is a philosopher. He is a thoughtful man who has probably analyzed these elements in a way that has given us a permanent achievement and insight into political life. And as I said, Yves Simone has some wonderful analyses in light of contemporary politics. Aristotle, in fact, sees that any of the claims pushed to an extreme will lead to the destruction of politics. Virtue pushed to an extreme will lead to a destruction of politics. The claim of wealth pushed to an extreme will destroy the regime. Majoritarianism, sheer numbers, the mob will destroy the political regime. So I think Aristotle sees the heart of politics is the prudential statesman who can mix the elements or mix the claims to get that proper balance to achieve excellence, to have the proper wealth needed to exist, to involve as many people as possible. So what I want to do is go through Aristotle's analysis of each claim and see how he teases out the truth of the claim and the limits of the claim and make a few references also to Yves Simone. Let's start with the claim of virtue. Aristotle says if any claim has the most reason to be recognized, it would be the claim of virtue. 
The point of the polis, after all, is the good life, not just mere life. Virtue most contributes to the good life and well-being of the society. That's in chapter 9. Or on the negative side, this is something Simone brings up. Who would ask for rule by the frivolous, the vicious, or the unexperienced? Even democracies will exclude the criminal, the insane, the child from voting rights, let alone political office. The point is, excellence does have the greatest claim. I remember when Jimmy Carter ran for office, his motto was, why not the best? That makes sense as a political claim, that one is representing the best, that one is the best. I've asked you to look at a letter from Thomas Jefferson to John Adams in which he says, America has done away with artificial aristocracy, but not the idea or what he calls the natural aristoi. Jefferson's vision was that American democracy through public education and representative government would allow the best to step forward to receive education, to talk to educated citizens. Again, this is the ideal, but Jefferson saw that, you see, as a valid claim. Why not the best? Excellence. So as I said, what we have in mind by the term virtue is not some narrow-minded notion of righteousness, but it has a political content as Strauss's quote indicates. Or let me turn to Yves R. Simone, pages 78 to 81, some marvelous descriptions of the claim of virtue. I'll just read a few short lines. Here's one. Good government is the work of excellent wisdom. It demands unusual virtue, intelligence, some education, a great deal of experience and many other qualifications which cannot be expected to be possessed by any great number of men. Now, Simone goes on to argue for universal suffrage, that is, the democratic principle of vote and openness to office. But he says we must face the weighty objections to universal suffrage. You know, I think we could bring to mind someone like Winston Churchill. He was an uncommon man. He just met that description very well. Or here's another quote from Simone that I like on page 80. He says, the definition of the good man is frightfully exacting. Goodness implies achievement, accomplishment, completeness, totality, integrality, plenitude. Goodness demands much. In a way, it demands all. But evil consists in privation and is completely brought into existence by any privation. So he just goes on to say here that virtue does have a hard claim upon political society. And he says there's a statistical reason. It's restricted to a few. Experience reveals that the occurrence of such virtue is rare. The very terms, outstanding ability, unusual achievement, suggest it's not so frequent. It is common to find people more led by passion and self-interest, or at least not fully developed in the requisite virtue. Is there not a natural inequality? This is the Greek subversive thought that can never be covered over. The inequality of intelligence and achievement. That doesn't mean 
inequality between God and man, or man and beast, as Aristotle first lays down. But among human beings, the Greeks acknowledge the principle of unequal achievement and virtue. Further, we know that virtue requires training and education. It requires leisure and a certain freedom from necessity. Now, often this idea of virtue is translated into political aristocracy, which is a distinct class which allows virtue to be bred and developed. Now, Simone says he's totally impatient with that idea because although he sees the claim the aristocratic society makes, I think he would agree with Harry Jaffa who says that the claim of virtue is not to be identified with the virtuous. First, that is, some aristocratic society. There's a number of reasons to go against the claim of the few, virtuous. The core of political justice is equality. This is fully acknowledged by Aristotle. Political rule is over equals and peers. Politics does have a democratic bent. If the claim of virtue is made absolute, then why not a king? The rule by the outstanding man. And Aristotle says the king is a regime with one citizen. That is, political life disappears. As Simone points out, there's a danger that power will breed arrogance and an isolation from the people as a whole. Men of virtue should at least consider popular consent as Pericles. But Yves Simone points out in our modern day, the problem of elites and experts are frightening. They claim virtue, but they actually are isolated from the people and lacking in good judgment. And on page 93, he said, again, as a Frenchman, we've learned from history the weak points of the upper class, their lack of realism, their hedonistic isolation from common suffering, the lack of a sense of history, their frivolity and conceit, a readiness to make alliances with the worst elements of the rabble, Germany was delivered to Hitler by Franz von Papen, and this will not be effaced from the pages of history. Most shocking of all was the realization that men describable as virtuous could become accomplices of atrocious crimes in such a cloud of confusion that nobody knew whether they were victims of monstrous illusions or had actually surrendered to evil. Yves R. Simone has a great way with words, but he learned his lesson from the disaster of France during World War II. Further, there's an argument that Aristotle makes that breaks the link of virtue with the few. The many as a group can muster together virtue. Aristotle gives the example of the group being able to put on a potluck dinner that can be pretty doggone good and maybe just as good as a rich man's banquet. And of course, Jefferson breaks the link through education. If universal education can be an ideal of a society, there's the possibility that the claim of virtue can be found 
among more than just the few. And as Aristotle himself will say, there's a certain virtue to the middle class who have neither the extremes of the poor or the rich. Let's turn to the claim of the many. Who are the many? The hoi polloi. The many are the poor. It is a term of deprivation. Those who have no claim but their sheer numbers, the strength of number. They have no distinction due to virtue, wealth, or expertise, but they can fight for their freedom. You see, for the Greek experience, the many were poor. That was part of the harsh necessities of their economic system. So again, Adam Smith helps to break that link between the few and the virtuous by economic development. And as I said, Jefferson saw the need, as well as others, for education. But why should the many rule on the basis of their sheer numbers? Aristotle gives some interesting arguments, one found on page 142, which is actually repeated by our own founding fathers as well as Tocqueville, is that the majority and their lack of distinction is actually a blessing in disguise. The idea that many are less apt to show great wickedness and vice. Tocqueville says democracy doesn't know what real vice is till they've seen an aristocrat. Aristotle says it's like diluted water. It may not be superb, but any poison will be diluted. You know, our founders made the same claim about an extended republic, that the greater number of people we could bring into political representation, the less apt will there be corruption or some kind of cabal to do evil. It's harder to keep evil secret among many as opposed to few. Secondly, Aristotle says, the many as a group can be virtuous and wise. Together and an assembly may exhibit virtue and wisdom. So they should be at least brought in on deliberative functions. He makes the analogy of the feast with many contributors or art critics with many perspectives. Here's a modern example. Siskel and Ebert were great to watch, but you go with your buddies to watch a movie, and the six or ten of you can come up with a lot of good insights, too. The experts don't have the only say. Aristotle says, after all, who uses the product of the shoemaker? Whoever puts the shoe on can tell you if it pinches. So Aristotle says the many should at least check the power of rule by way of consent to examine office holders at the end of their tenure. I think Aristotle would reject, and Yves Simone mentions what he calls the romantic arguments for the many, that the masses are inherently just and virtuous, and the few are inherently unjust. This is the Marxist idea or an idea going back to Rousseau, glorifying the noble savage and simple peasant, or these other attempts by Hitler to romanticize the German people or the Volk. Another, as I said, modern argument for the many is technology can provide greater wealth and leisure for the many for greater education. Can the claim of the many be absolutized? Again, it's a partial claim. This is the ancient quarrel with democracy, which still has its validity. If democracy means 
rule simply by majority because of their strength. I think we would reject that rightly. To say that numbers determine what is right, the American penchant for taking a poll, if the majority say it's okay, it's okay. That is to be rejected. Aristotle also saw practically the danger of mob passion, that the many could be a herd of beasts. If the few can be corrupted, as Simone mentioned, so can the people be brutalized or moved by hatred, enthusiasm, fear. Strength alone is the claim of a tyrant. In one passage, Aristotle has the many saying, by Zeus, the majority declares it, as if that will make it right. And Aristotle says, that's the claim of a tyrant, to say, I am strong and therefore do what I say. And finally, the problem of majority tyranny, which Tocqueville speaks about. The ancient democracies use ostracism violence and purges to get rid of those who can't pass the bar of the common man. So the last one I will mention is the claim of wealth. Wealth has a claim because of its contribution to the existence of society, necessities, jobs, taxes. They have something at stake. They may be more prudent in a certain respect because of the protection of property. They're more reliable in contracts, again, out of self-interest, but money-making does take a certain excellence, and it's a condition for other achievements. What is against the claim of the wealthy is it is divisive. The common good is more than just money. It involves justice and common goods. Contribution of the wealthy is partial. There's more to a polis than wealth. Their virtue is questionable. They're partial to one's own and to their profit. So to conclude here, Aristotle's great analysis, which I've done very briefly, but you can read the rich texture and look at Simone's rendition of it in a contemporary context, shows the major political problem is that immoderate claims breed extremes and divide the polis. It creates instability and asks for civil war. These claims are somewhat incommensurable, like apples and oranges. There's no simple formula. One has to mix together the claim of excellence, the claim of wealth, and the claim of numbers. It's like mixing life and the good life, necessity and freedom. If necessity and life, if wealth and numbers overcome excellence, then we will have a certain brutalizing of political life, the loss of the fine side of politics. But if the claim of virtue gets the upper hand, there is a kind of foolishness that could be exhibited, a utopianism. So Aristotle's great achievement here, the great political challenge, is how to mix wisdom or virtue with the money makers, the property owners, and the majority of people. And that will lead to our next section about that regime called polity, or the mixed regime. So I think this helps to explain why Aristotle thinks democracy in its purity is a bad regime, but so is oligarchy. The political task is to mix them into the mixed regime. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.